The scripture reading today is First uh, John chapter one verses five through chapter two verse two. If you would stand uh, for the reading of God's word in the Black Pew Bible, it is page one thousand two hundred and ten. Twelve hundred and ten. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. I want to start off by saying that it takes a lot of trust for a pastor to allow someone to come into his pulpit. That's not something that, that any pastor should take lightly. Some do, unfortunately. Ours does not. and I'm thankful for the opportunity to be able to preach. It's a weighty thing. It's not something that, that I feel prepared to do. It's not something that, that I feel privileged to do. I'm just a sinner. But this morning, it is a privilege to be able to bring you God's Word. It is a privilege to be able to preach. It is a means of grace in which we are sanctified. And I am thankful for Shane and for his ministry, for his preaching ministry, and I'm thankful that I get to be a part of it. 1 John chapter 1. We looked last week at one verse, and we went over it in our group uh, this morning, that we saw that John's purpose in writing this epistle was to encourage his readers who were understood to be believers. And he was to assure them of their salvation by verifying the validity of their profession through tests of the spiritual life. Ultimately causing us to answer the question, who are you in Christ? That's what we looked at last week. And that's what the question we set before is, John ministers through the doctrine of assurance in a way that you and I wouldn't typically do it, but he ministers in a way that asks the question, who are we in Christ? And we looked last week at verse 5 and we saw the divine message that John and the other apostles were, were stewarded with proclaiming. And the message is, is that God is light and in Him there is no darkness. And if you didn't get a chance to hear that, you weren't here, you were vacationing, you were sick, we have a great ministry, uh, it's online, it, it is not online church, for there's no such thing, but it is a way to catch up when you're sick or you're, you're out of town or something, that's fine, it's a good way to catch up, and uh, Brian, if you want to go back and look at it, you can put it on point five, and maybe I'll, if you do point five, you know, speed... I think it'll be, you can hear me a lot better. <laughs> You'll hear, Brian was like, boy, you, you rock and roll. I was like, yeah, I don't have much time and I have a lot to say. <laughs> but podcast, you can speed it up or go as slow as you want to. So put it on point five and I'll just be like a regular person. So, uh, <laughs> so uh, we have a lot to get through this morning as well. So we're going to see how well we do. I will try to slow down. And uh, uh, we have a lot more points this morning too. But they should be in your worship guide. So hopefully you can go ahead and catch up on that. 
But the message was that God is light and in Him is, in, in, is no darkness at all. And we said that that was the gospel message. That's not the only message that they brought. This is the gospel message, if you will. And, and with this statement, we saw that it was John's purpose to set this foundation in order to indicate the nature of the true fellowship that Christians have with God in Christ. And that nature is one of holiness. One that is in the light. And that living in darkness is absolutely incompatible with fellowship with God. So he tests us on the obedience portion. We talked about that. There's a spiritual test that he's going to take us through. And this is the test of obedience. And in these verses this week, we're going to look, for, look at a series of contrasts, if you will. We're going to, he's going to contrast two types of people. Those who claim to be in fellowship with God, yet they walk in darkness and those who are actually in fellowship with God, and they walk in light. And John is going to show us what it looks like this morning to walk in the light of the gospel. His message, it's very simple. If you've been born again and you are walking in the light of the gospel, then there will be fruit in your life. Evidences that will manifest themselves as you walk in the light. But he does it in a way that's so encouraging a way that gives great assurance of our salvation, something that hold, our anchor can hold on to, and that being he ministers through the doctrine of Christ and how he looks to Christ, and we talked about that last week. So John's letter is not really written to alarm us at all. It's written to give us the great assurance, to comfort us. It's so pastoral in its way in which he writes. This week, we pick back up in verse 6, and we're going to see first, I want you to look at, I want you to see the duped walker. The duped walker. Today is going to be a tennis match. It's going to be Nadal versus Curios, if you will. Uh, if you're a tennis fan, you know what I'm talking about. Curios being the bad guy, Nadal being the good guy like Nadal. So it's going to be a back and forth between those who walk in darkness and those who walk in light. And so first up, we're going to see the darkness. And John addresses the Gnostic deceivers and those who, that have followed after them. He says in verse 6 that if we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. John is going to start off the next four verses with the word if. And in the Greek, the word means to suppose. It's like a series of hypothetical questions really meant to state an absolute truth. It's, it's a unique teaching style that John possesses, and he, and he does it very effectively, causing the reader to probe their hearts. And each verse is meant to contrast the other, in which one expresses the negative and the other contrasts with the positive. So in verses 6, verses 8, and verses 10, look with me, in verse 6, if we say, verse 8, if we say, and verse 10, if we say. This is the negative. Those who say something, yet it doesn't have a corresponding reality. In context, referring to the Gnostics who are all talk, but yet no walk. And then in verse 7, he says, but if we walk. And in verse 9, you'll see, he says, if we confess. Here we have the positive, where the truth claim is backed up with reality, with a habitual walking in the light. And we're going to unpack these verses. And, and John, you're going to see he uses these word, the word we 
He puts himself in this context of verse 6 and really 8 and verse 10, but he's not saying that's who he is. He's not identifying with the Gnostics. He's not identifying with those who walk in the darkness. It's really in a general sense in which John uses this word, and it really speaks for everyone who is exposed to the gospel truth. It's as if I said, we in our county must turn to God. Well, does that mean John has not turned to God? Or No, it just says that he's using it in a general sense. So, John says that if we say that we have fellowship with him... Now, let's stop right there. Underline the word say. If we say... You can do that in verse 6, you can do it in verse 8, and do verse 10. If we say... There's a lot of things people say today, but yet truth, the reality, doesn't back up what we, what he say, what we say. In fact, culture says today that you can be a man biologically, but yet you can be a woman. You can identify as a woman. You can say that you're a woman, yet you can say you can identify as a man. You can say something, yet reality doesn't back that up. So it's a lie. It, it befuddles me where we're at today. But saying something about yourself doesn't necessarily make it true, does it not? A.W. Pink says about this verse, there's a radical difference between profession and possession. There, there are many today, and even in John's day, who say they have a fellowship with God, meaning union with God, there's salvation with God. Many liberal denominations, many religions, if you will, Muslims, Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, Catholics, will say they have a fellowship with God. Even a mass amount of people in church today will say they have a fellowship with God. However, their actions, their deeds, and in fact, some of the things that they actually preach and teach, they don't line up with the Word of God. These people that John is referring to, those who say they have fellowship with God are those that have invaded the church they, they believe the Bible. They, they know who God is or they believe in God. They even talk about Christ. They know some truths about Christ. You could say they speak Christianese, if you will. But John says, let's examine your life. Because you can tell a lot about a man or a woman by what they say or do, actually. He says, if you say that you have fellowship with God, yet you walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. You see, it's not what one claims, but it what, it's what one does. You can talk the talk all day, but you've got to walk the walk. What, what does he mean by walk in darkness? Let me state first what it does not mean. It doesn't mean to be in doubt about your spiritual state, nor totally lacking in assurance of our acceptance with God. That, that's a fruit, right, of our salvation that will continue to grow in that. We're going to talk about through this through this epistle. Nor is it a deep depression or despondency of our soul. That would be a sin, but yet that's something we should come out of, right? We, 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 would go, we can go through some of those things. Even Spurgeon had a despondency of soul. Martin Luther as well. But we wouldn't say they were lost. No, John is drawing a comparison between the light that he spoke of in verse 5 with the darkness in which these false believers traversed in. In essence, to walk in darkness means that your life is in opposition to the revealed character and the will of Him who is in the light. The word walk is in the present tense. 
And it refers to someone who is habitually walking in darkness. We talked a little bit about this this morning in our small group. It really refers to the direction of your lifestyle. And to be honest, this is the state of all those who have yet to place their faith in Christ. To walk in darkness means to be a slave to sin, to be a slave to Christ, to, or, or to, to Satan. To walk in darkness is to walk the broad road, which leads to destruction. To be under the wrath of God, to ultimately end up in the lake of fire for all of eternity. And, and John, note, he's not talking about the drunk on the corner. He's not talking about the hobo on the street. He is talking to church-going people. He is talking to the, upsta- up, the, 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 the upstanding church guy that's sitting in the pew. I hearken back to Christ's words in Matthew 7 that some of you will say to me, Lord, Lord, and some of you are going to do good works. But what does he say? He says, I never knew you. Depart from me, you worker of iniquity. You can say, Lord, all you want to. You can profess it all day, but if you don't possess it, it means nothing. And John says that this person who says that they are in fellowship, yet their life does not match what they believe, and they say, they, he says, they lie and they do not practice the truth. They dupe themselves. They're lying not only to themselves, but they're lying to others. Any person who lives a life characterized by sin is not in the fellowship because he is not in the light. The Gnostics claimed to be in the light, but they were blatant, amoral sinners. These are the Judases. These are the tares among the wheat. These are the five virgins who did not trim their lampstands. These are the religious but lost. These are the unsaved church members. They are the counterfeit Christians. They are, as John will say, the Antichrist. These hypocrites, they shelter behind an empty profession and are not easily identified. For they hold the letter of truth, yet they acknowledge with their lips, though they walk not in it, nor are their lives transformed by it. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.17 that if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things, they're passed away. Behold, all things, they have become new. You see, true Christians, we don't live our lives characterized by sin. We don't walk in darkness. It doesn't mean, and we're going to unpack this even more, but it doesn't mean that we're perfect. It doesn't mean that we don't sin. But it does mean that we're living a life that's obedient to Christ. James said that if our faith is genuine, your works, they will reveal it. Next up, I want you to see verse 7. I want you to see the devoted walker. He says, but, and there's the transition, right? There's our contrast. He says, between those not of born of God and those born of God. And he says, but if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. In verse 6, the true hypocrite is exposed. And in verse 7, the true Christian is identified. Walk again is in the present tense. Very important that we understand the tenses here. And it conveys not an occasional step, but it is a habitual stride, if you will. It's an indicator of character. John basically says that if we habitually walk in the light as God is in the light, then we have fellowship with Him. It's to live in separation from the world with our affection set upon those things above. It's to lay up our treasures in heaven. It's to walk the narrow path, not the broad road. It's to crucify the flesh. 
It's also agreeing with God that you are a sinner. It's in complete opposite of what he said in verse 6. The person in verse 6 says, but yet doesn't back that up with his walk. The person in verse 7 claims, he, he claims it and he backs it up with his walk because he is the devoted walker. The, the one another, if you will, in this passage, we have fellowship with one another. I, in whom we have fellowship with is none other than God himself. And, and I, I don't believe this is speaking of fellow Christians. I don't believe that's the context at this point. I also don't believe it, it's, it's speaking of Christians because if you look at the Greek and you look at how this is modified, he says, and the blood of Jesus, his son, his son cleanses us from all sin we see that the word his modifies the word another. So the word another refers to God. So we have fellowship with God. That's what he's saying. That if you're walking in the light as he is in the light, then you have fellowship with him. We are the true partakers who walk in the light, possessing eternal life, manifesting truth to, and, and holiness to a dark world. That is what a believer is. It's one who has been born again, who possesses eternal life, who walks in godliness, who communes with God, and understands who he is in Christ. And not only are we enjoying communion with God, but the only way you can do that is by the blood of Jesus, his Son, who cleanses us from all sin. That is how you have true communion with God. This is very important in this passage here. You can't have communion with God if you have not been cleansed. It does not happen. And note, you cannot be cleansed by walking in the light. For you are as much a sinner in the light as you are in darkness. This is why this part of the verse is so important. He says, you cannot have fellowship with God unless your sin is taken away. Your fellowship with God does not take away sin. Salvation is the only condition in which your sins are cleansed. When a person is born again, he is once and for all justified. He is made right before God. He is brought into that fellowship. And I want you to notice that how much sin is cleansed from. It's not just some. It's not just a little bit. It's not almost. But what does he say? He says, all sin. There is no sin that is greater than the blood of Christ. You have been cleansed from all sin if you've been born again. And that is how you have fellowship with God. Christ's blood has covered it all. But as long as you're in this human, unredeemed flesh, we battle. We battle with sin. And when you sin, what he's saying is it's the blood of Christ. It has cleansed you and it keeps on cleansing you. See the connection that John is making here. If we are walking in the light, we have no warrant for believing that our sins are... If we're not walking in the light, we have no warrant to believe that our sins have been covered. Just like Phil said this morning, is you have no assurance if you're walking in the darkness. There is no assurance of salvation while living in disobedience. But because you have been cleansed by the blood of Christ, because you have been justified by His atoning work, you can walk in the light of His truth and holiness. As you live that way, you reveal that you are in the light. And as you progressively become more and more aware of your sin, as you walk in that light, you are constantly being cleansed. The Word is what washes over us and cleanses us. 
Jesus has this interesting illustration in John chapter 13. It's very interesting, and it really goes with this. In summary, Christ uses the washing of Peter's feet as an illustration. He, in verse 10 of that passage, he says this to Peter, He who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not all of you. That not all of you, speaking to Judas who was sitting in the room, he had not been bathed. What Jesus is saying is, is that once you have been cleansed, all your sins, they have been forgiven. Only the dust of the world needs to be washed off your feet. And he says, I'll continue to do that. I'll be the one to sanctify you. What a beautiful promise as Christians today is that we have this sanctification that Christ says, I'll finish what I started. If you've been born again, there's no need to take a bath. All you need is your feet washed. Not only judicially have your sins been taken care of, but continually. One author put it, and I thought this was great, is instead of judicial forgiveness, it's parental forgiveness. It's not judicial forgiveness. That's been done. But it's parental forgiveness. As we walk in the light of the gospel, Christ, through His Word and the convicting power of the Holy Spirit, He will cleanse us daily of all of our sin. What a marvelous picture. I want you to look next at number three. The deceived perfectionist. The deceived perfectionist. Verse 8. John, he serves the ball back into the unbeliever's court. He says, If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. So in verse 6, we saw those false Christians claim they have fellowship with God, yet what? They walk in darkness and they do not practice the truth. Now in verse 8, they actually claim to have no sin, and he says, they therefore are self-deceived, and the truth is not in them. Literally, the claim reads is, I don't sin anymore. John is saying this person is in complete denial of sin. If he did have any sin, it was in the past. He has reached an elevated position of enlightenment, and that is what the Gnostics were known for, which they had, been, they had ascended to a higher knowledge of all their other people. They are perfectionists. They had concocted in their minds that there was no sin in them any longer. They would agree that sin was only in the flesh, but the spirit was absolutely sinless. But John says you're deceiving yourselves. For what kind of fool would say that they have no sin? A prideful one. A self-deceived, counterfeit Christian. And what kind of Christian, as they're brought into the light of the gospel, and they are studying God's Word and exposed by the light, which exposed us to the darkness, would say, I have no sin. I'm good. That's total malarkey in the Greek, if you will. <laughs> the more you are brought into the light and you understand God's Word, the more you realize how wretched a sinner you are. You don't go the opposite way. You become like Isaiah. What do we see in Isaiah 6? When he is brought before the throne room of God, the, the trihagion, the holy, holy, holiest. And what does he say? He says, oh, I'm good. No. He says, woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. This is one of the most righteous people in Israel at that time. When he is faced with God... Christ, really, in Isaiah, he's undone. 
he is undone. And that's what you and I are doing. As we are faced with the Word of God, this is why the Word of God is so important in our lives, is why we study it, because it's a mirror. It, is a, not only, it not only shows who God is, but it shows who we are not. It's that we're sinners. A true believer is not sinless, but rather sin-conscious. He is one who has a right understanding of his own sinful condition because he has a right understanding of his holy God. A true believer is not one who is self-deceived, but one who has been changed by the truth. The unbeliever is one who runs from the truth, who, who is void of the truth, who, who twists the truth. No man is without sin. No man is perfect. No man can deny sin and claim to have a relationship with God. John says, this man is devoid of the truth. He is unaware of his darkness and convinced that he is okay when in fact he is absolutely not. Look next, verse 9. I want you to see the delivered confessor. Again, back and forth, contrast. Such a beautiful way. The delivered confessor. He says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You probably have this passage memorized. It's such a beautiful passage. But you may have not ever had it in context either, learned it. It's a great, it's, it's true, but, but it's even better when we see it in context of Scripture. In verse 6, 8, and 10, we're shown how certain types of godless professors are cut off from the privilege of being in fellowship with God. How then are we to identify those who do enjoy this great privilege? Another way to ask that is, is what are the clear and infallible marks by which Christians may know themselves to be among those who are in fellowship with God. One way we can answer that is, is we can define a Christian as one who agrees with God, that he is a sinner. John confirms the fact that sin is still within us, that the unredeemed flesh continues to hound us, and he continues the theme that we saw in verse 7, that, he is, that we are positionally justified, Sin has been forgiven. You have been made righteous. You have been clothed with righteousness from the, head of your, uh, from the top of your head to the bottom of your soul. But yet sin still remains in us. It still dogs us, if you will, on this side of heaven. And those who have entered into the kingdom of God, they have come admitting that they are great sinners in need of a great Savior. Each one of you have been born again. You have admitted that in some form or fashion. They've trusted in the atoning work of Christ and trusted that their sins have been forgiven. Those truths, they're synonymous with being a Christian. You can't be in the light of the gospel if you haven't come first to the realization of your sins. That's foundational. You've entered into the narrow gate. But beyond that narrow gate is a narrow path that we must traverse. In the believer's life, there's going to be a continual confession of sins as we are brought more into the light of the gospel. The more we are exposed to the truth and God's holiness and righteousness, the more we come to the realization that we are sinners. And John says here that those who are in true fellowship with God, those who, uh, with God and those are those who are continually confessing their sins to God. In effect, it reads, if we are the ones confessing sins, He is forgiving us. God only forgives those who are confessing their sins. Christians. Those who aren't confessing their sins cannot be a Christian. But John wasn't saying you must confess your sins or God won't forgive you. That's not what he's saying. It, it's not a condition, if you will. It's not like he says if, if we confess, he forgives, or he forgives only because you confess. That's a meritorious act. 
That's a condition. That's something you did. That's what the Catholics teach. Is that you're saved by confessing. No. Rather, what John is saying is, is that if we are the ones confessing, present tense, continual act, our sins, then we are the ones being forgiven. Does that make sense? If we are the ones confessing, then we are the ones being forgiven. Let me say it another way. The ones who are being forgiven are characterized as confessors. That's really the only way that you can understand this verse in the context of this scripture, in the context of the entirety of the Bible. Forgiveness is not because of the confession. Confession is because of the forgiveness. Or we can say that you don't have to confess to be forgiven, but we do confess because we are forgiven. John MacArthur says this, he says, he says it about this, is that continual confession characterizes Christians. Now, he's not a Southern Baptist preacher. He, he, he doesn't alliterate very well. He'll even tell you he doesn't alliterate very well, but that is a really good alliteration, right? The four C's, if you will. Continual confession characterizes Christians. Continual confession characterizes Christians. True confession of sin, it wrought's great sorrow over our sin. True confession involves repentance, which means to stop what you're doing and turn and go the other way. True confession, it bears honesty with oneself. True confession is detailed and not superficial, plumbing the depths of the heart and truly acknowledging your sinfulness before God. True confession never says, I haven't done anything wrong. That's what a blind man says. True confession is honest with oneself. True confession, it also restores joy. Chris said last week, he used Psalm 51. And in the context of that psalm, David has sinned greatly. And not only has he sinned against himself, not only has he sinned against Bathsheba, not only has he sinned against a great nation, but he has utterly sinned against God. And he is broken. And this is his confession psalm. And he comes, and what does he say? He's confessing, and he says, this is what he says in verse 12. He says, restore unto me the joy of my salvation. Do you have joy this morning, Christian? Are you struggling with joy? You call yourself a Christian, but are you struggling with joy? Maybe it's that you have an unconfessed sin. Let's confess our sins. Because He is just and righteous to forgive them. In fact, here's the encouragement for us to perform such a painful duty to examine our lives, that He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God is faithful and He is righteous to do exactly what He said He would do, and that is to keep on forgiving us of our sins and cleansing us from all unrighteousness. He is righteous and just to forgive, not because we can confess, but because Christ paid the penalty. And here's an interesting tidbit. Forgive and cleanse, they're in the aorist tense which speaks not of a process, but of a single act in the past. You who are alive to the gospel in Christ, your sins, they have been forgiven. Rest and assured of that. That is how he ministers this doctrine of assurance. They have been forgiven. If you are a confessor of sin, then you can rest assured that you have full assurance that God is faithful and just to forgive you of those. Positionally. And not only positionally are we cleansed, but I believe that by the same blood that was spilled upon the cross and via fellowship and communion with God, as we walk in the light of the gospel, God starts to work this out in the image of Christ as He said He would in Romans 8. 
In other words, he sanctifies us. Remember, I said last week and earlier that John wants his audience to know what it means to be in perfect union with Christ. The question is, who are you in Christ this morning? As one who confesses sin, it sometimes can cause us to be discouraged and even ask, how can I be forgiven of this sin? It's so weighty and I've I've sinned greatly. But John, he reminds us that in Christ, you could have no greater love from Him than when you came to Him in faith. You, you have complete favor with God, and you can never lose that. You are no more justified when you come to Christ than you are if you walked 50 years with Christ. He, he, as believers in Christ, His blood cleanses us. He's faithful to forgive. He's faithful to cleanse you of all unrighteousness. This is who are you in Christ. This is how John goes about showing the believer that he is assured of his salvation. For ultimately, Jake, it's not rooted in ourselves, but it is rooted in Christ. Paul, he writes in Romans that there's nothing that can separate you from the love of Christ. Nothing can take the fellowship and communion with God from you. Be assured of that. And when you rest in that, when you rest in that assurance and that you understand that your salvation has nothing to do with you and that your identity is in Christ today and God is just to forgive and to cleanse you, then you don't cling to your sin anymore. You aren't scared to confess that sin. There's nothing you hold tightly to anymore in this world. There's nothing that has your full attention other than the fellowship you have and the joy you have in Christ. When you fully understand this, there's nothing that holds back the confession of sin, the the, the transparency of the soul, because none of it affects my security with Christ. There is a willingness to confess sin when the light of the gospel informs you and, and you grow closer and fuller in the knowledge of the justifying and atoning work of Christ. What a magnificent thing that Paul or John wants us to know. I said I was going to use Paul. What John wants us to know, when you sin, you have a Savior. Next, C, verse 10, the defaming liar. The defaming liar. He says, if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Back to the unbeliever. The person in verse 6 admits sin in his life but walks in darkness. The person in 8 used to sin but is now a perfectionist. And now the person in verse 10 says he has never sinned. You see, the Gnostics claimed that they had superior knowledge that made them incapable of sinning. That flatly contradicts the word of truth. When you say that you're incapable of sinning, and that you have never sinned, you are ultimately you are calling God a liar and you are defaming Him. Paul says that God is not a liar in, chapter, in Titus chapter 1, verse 2. God is light and He cannot lie. You see, the Gnostics, they did not agree with God about sin. And this defamed the character of God and nature of God and in essence calls Him a liar. It's blasphemy to the highest degree. But you say, well, why does that make Him a liar? Why is that? Because God's assessment of us before we came to Christ is that we are wretched, we are vile, we are evil, we are dead in trespasses and sins, we are spiritually blind, we are deaf, we have been enslaved to sin, we are stiff-necked people, we are lifeless, we are resistant, we are rebellious, we are corrupt, on and on. It's not a good evaluation of our lives. So one cannot come away from reading the word of truth 
and say that I have not sinned. And he says that if you say this, then in, in fact, it's not that you have not just read the word of truth and not know it, but he says it's not in you. You cannot be in fellowship with God and have the word of truth in you. You have to have the word of truth. That's what characterizes us as Christians. A.W. Pink states that none but the regenerate have a true concept of that abominable thing which God hates. You cannot claim to have fellowship with God in the same breath say that I've read the Scripture and say I have not sinned. It does not happen. I want you to see finally this morning the defender. The defender. Chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. And I'll say this. This verses are, are so weighty. They're so heavy that I don't have time to exposit it all. In fact, this is a great time to plug in small group. That I will say that there will be some questions for your small group leaders following this. So they will be, they will, Chris and Jamie and Morgan and Phil and Chase, whoever, uh, Miss Jane, whoever, they'll have a great time being explained some of this verse. But John writes, he says, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And He Himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the, those of the whole world. John said earlier that we are to habitually confess sins as Christians. So you might be inclined to say that, well, if I'm always going to be confessing sin and needing to be cleansed, then why say don't sin? Why, why do that? If I'm going to sin and I have to continually confess my sinfulness, why bother trying to live a holy life? I'm constantly being cleansed anyway, so I might as well live how I want to. That type of thinking is antithetical to what John is teaching. In fact, it's antithetical to what Christ taught and every apostle and every true, true teacher after him. That's what the antinomialists believe. No Christian has a license to sin this morning. Never, ever will that happen. The fact is, Christians don't have to sin. Our, one author put it, forgiveness of sin does not mean freedom to sin. As Christians, you have been set free from the chains and the bondage of, of, of sin. You've been set free. And now you have been made free, and now you are enslaved to Christ. You don't have liberty to sin. You have liberty to do righteous and not sin. But when we do sin, you no longer take pleasure in it. You don't waller in it. You don't enjoy it. Rather, you confess it to God and you forsake that sin. You are now free in Christ to obey God and not sin. John says that this is one of the reasons that why he's writing the, the epistle. He's writing it not only to give you assurance of salvation, but also is so that you may not sin. Why, what is that? What's another word? Is so that you may be holy, so that you may identify with the one who is light, and in him there's no darkness. So now you Christians, that is who you are, is that you are light, and that you may not sin. It reflects the light of the one that we have fellowship within in order that we may have joy. He says this, If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, 
Jesus Christ, the righteous. And He Himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. Who is anyone and who is we? Certainly not everyone. The we is not the world, okay? We refers to those who walk in the light. The little children in verse 1. We have to follow the pronouns. It's very important. And John says, for those people, for those who sin, and we could really translate this as when you sin, we Christians have, present tense currently, an advocate. Parakletos. Someone who is called alongside to help. And not everyone has this. Only Christians have this. John doesn't teach universalism. He doesn't teach that everyone has a Savior, that, that everyone is saved, or that everyone is forgiven of their sins. That's not what he teaches here. That's what false teachers teach. Only those who have trusted in Christ have Christ as an advocate this morning. Christ died for his sheep, John 10. You can study that a little bit more if you want to. John, he ultimately, he paints this courtroom scene. Go back with me here. He, God is the ultimate judge. Satan comes inside the, the, the courtroom and he is the prosecuting attorney. And what is he doing? He is constantly accusing the brethren of sin. He's saying, look at him. Look at Shane. He is a sinner, God. Look at him. Look at what he did today. Look at Blake. He's not worthy to be called righteous. Look at him. He sinned. But then Christ comes in and he busts through the courtroom and he is the best defense attorney that you'll ever have. He is the undefeated defense attorney. He says, no, Father, I have taken the sin upon me. I've, it's been crucified at the cross. It's been forgiven. I took the penalty. I am the propitiation, the satisfaction for sin. I took the punishment. I took what was owed to him. I gave him my resume and I took his rap sheet. Christ is our high priest. He is our advocate. He is our substitute. Christ is our defender. And the outcome? A full acquittal. The undefeated defense attorney. Never has he lost a case. He is the righteous one. He is holy. He is perfect. He is light. And in him no darkness. Through the sin-bearing, substitutionary death of Jesus Christ upon the cross, bearing our sins, dying in our place, shedding His blood, He alone has appeased the wrath and righteous wrath of an angry God toward those who sin. He has satisfied the Father. That is what propitiation means. Is the wrath of God has been satisfied. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. What a glorious doctrine this is today. As Christians, we're cleansed when we sin. And when we continually agree with God that we are sinners, as a result, we can conquer sin in our lives. And when we fail to conquer it, Jesus Christ, He is our advocate. He pleads our case. Even though we are guilty, He satisfied the law's requirement for punishment. And John says, look, not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. I'll leave this verse up again to our small group leaders, but I will say this. I'm going to leave you with two thoughts this morning. One, first, is, this is what it's not saying. Not Everyone in the world has their sins forgiven. That would make Christ dying in vain. That would mean there are billions of people in hell today who have had their sins forgiven. That would make God an unjust God, okay? 
That would mean that Christ didn't fully accomplish what he set out to do. But the second thing is, I think this is what this is really teaching. Two things, you can take it one way or the other, okay? And either way, it's fine. I think one, when John says this, not for ours only, he's referring to those in the letter who have believed, right? The little children. Not for ours only, okay? And then he says, we who have believed, that, that would be not for ours only. And then he says, but also for those of the whole world, meaning beyond the first century church, if you will, those, all those believers who will be gathered and reading this letter, who, believers down the centuries and the lines who will place their faith and trust in Christ, he's saying they have a propitiation made for them as well. This is the all-encompassing propitiation. It's not just for first century Jewish people and Gentiles. This goes throughout all of eternity, if you will. Second, you could look at it like this, is that John primarily wrote to a Jewish audience, that some commentators say that he may have wrote to a Jewish audience. There is sufficient evidence to say that that, that's possible. The Jews, they would have really understood what propitiation means because that's a sacrifice term, right? So he uses this term. So when John says, not for ours, that being the Jews but also for those of the whole world, that being Gentiles, the heathens, right? We see that language in John 3 as well, John 3, 16, 17, and through there. So however you want to line there, I wouldn't argue. I would probably lean more to the first, but if you came, had a good refutation, I'd move on that probably. But here's what we can't say is not, he didn't die for everybody. Not for all. Not everybody's sins are forgiven. Not everybody has an advocate this morning. Christ died for the children of God, those God determined to be His children from eternity past. Whatever God purposes, He accomplishes. And it can't be thwarted. Our application this morning. First of all, to believers, because this is who the epistle is written to. It's to the believers. You should be comforted by the fact that your sins are forgiven. That Christ has paid the penalty at the cross. You've been forgiven this morning and you have been cleansed positionally. We can revel in that. You have been set free from the slavery of sin. You no longer have to sin. You're no longer controlled by it. So don't, he says. I write this so you don't sin. May we walk in holiness and righteousness. And may we demonstrate our gratitude to him who has come and saved us by walking in righteousness and holiness. But 1 John reminds us that there's a tension here in the life of the believer. For just as believers will walk in holiness, unfortunately, we're going to sin. As long as you have unredeemed flesh, as long as this side of heaven, unfortunately, we're going to sin. Because of the weaknesses, sometimes we forget who our master is. We go back to the pig pen. We go back to the slop. But no longer are we enslaved to that. Thankfully, when that occurs, we can turn to Christ for cleansing. We can have our feet washed. If you repent when you sin, know that you are a true believer this morning. If you confess sin, know that you're a true believer. Confessing, God, I am not right. 
And I repent of that sin and I turn from it. Know this morning that you have an advocate. Know that you've been cleansed and are continually having your feet washed. And this morning, may we be characterized by confession. May you be a continual confessing Christian. May that be us this morning. And also, you've been made a light unto the gospel. I tell my children this all the time, is that you're shankled and that you live in a glass house. As Christians, we live in a glass house. People are always watching us. They're constantly evaluating us, especially if we say that we are in Christ. Each one of us have a job to do. Each one of us have to parent. Each one of us are in the community. And we say, that we say what are we doing? We're, I confess Christ. I confess the light. Know that people are watching us. Know that people are looking at us. Now, we don't do this for a meritorious act. But know that these children, the pagans, they're watching us. And we need to walk in righteousness. You're called to do that. You walk in, in light. Maybe do that. And does your walk back up your talk? Additionally, if you have a high view of God, do you have a high view of God's holiness and His justice? Do you have a right understanding of your ultimate depravity? I would implore you to strive always to seek His holiness. Shane talked about this this morning, His attributes. There are numerous Numerous books out there. The Holiness of God by R.C. Sproul. None, none better written than to be able to gaze upon the holiness of God. And you will come away seeing who you truly are. <clears throat> to those who are outside of Christ this morning. To those of you who do not know Christ. You walk in darkness. Don't let coming to church... Don't let it deceive you. Don't be deceived. I say, Blake, I, I've been in church my whole life. I've even been baptized. Don't deceive yourself this morning. For just walking into a maintenance shop doesn't make me a mechanic. Just walking into a church does not make you a Christian. You have to examine your life. Have you trusted in Christ? Have you believed upon Him? Have you repented? Maybe you've gone to church your whole life and you said, I've never trusted in Christ. I've never truly confessed my sins. I've never truly seen who I am, truly depraved and utter and who Christ is. Fall upon your knees and cry out to Him because He is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins. He is faithful and just and He will do that. This morning, you, you're denying your sin. You say, I have no sin. I'm a good person. Don't be foolish. For the Bible says you're not good. Paul says no one is good. Not one. You are a deceiver. And you defame the name of God. And you're hanging above hell by a mere thread. And when you die, you will face the judgment, the righteous judgment of God. You have no advocate for you. If you die today, if you do not know Christ, the best defense attorney cannot save you. There is no Leslie Bowen in heaven that can save you. And Christ is going to say, 
He deserves the punishment. But if you come to a realization of your sins, come to a realization of Christ, and you repent of those sins, and you trust in Him for your salvation, you have an advocate. You have someone who says, I've paid the price. Sins have been cleansed. And now you can walk in the light of the gospel. Don't deny your sin today. This morning, may we be characterized by a continual confession of sin, a continual cleansing of sin, and the ability to conquer sin. Let's pray. Father, what a glorious, glorious doctrine this morning. What a glorious word that you have for us this morning. Oh, how we have an advocate for us that Christ has paid the sin debt that we owe. Help us this morning as believers to to look to Christ, to walk in the light, to have our feet cleansed, to continually confess our sins, pray that this morning our people, we, we, we look to you and we understand our, our, our sinfulness. And God, we cry out to you that beaver, we're a, we are characterized by people who confess sin. That we say, Shane says it all the time, man, we, we come here because we don't have it all together. And that's true. But we have a great Savior. And we're so thankful for that. Thank you for that propitiation for that assurance of salvation. (laughs) Thank you that I don't have to look to myself to save myself. But I can look to the one who did. For this morning, for those that don't know you, there is nothing that would make me so more joyous than to know that they, they walk away this week being convicted of their sins, being brought into the light of the gospel via the Holy Spirit and the ministering of your word, and trusting in Christ. I pray that their hearts are penetrated with the light and that the darkness is exposed. And bring them back to us so that we can fellowship and joy with them. What a magnificent Savior we have. We are in debt of gratitude to you. May we walk in that. Walk in light. It is in Christ's wonderful name we pray. Amen.